another issue of Essential Environmental. Today, our guest is Barry Ross. Um, and we're going to be talking about, you know, at the essence of, of any environmental, um, which is, you know, very specific type of real property, real estate case, you've got issues of real estate rights, um, types of developments, and um, types of rights and interests that parties have. So we're starting at uh, at a very uh, at a very um, basic but very important level. And today we're going to be talking about community development associations that have um, codes, covenants, and restrictions, and um, homeowner association law. And we have with us Barry Ross, who I've known for uh, a long time. I think over over twenty years. Barry has been admitted to the bar in 1973. He has more than 100 uh, jury and bench trials, 50 plus arbitrations and mediations. In fact, he sits as a temporary judge in the Orange County Superior Court uh, and has for a few years, I believe, he'll he'll clarify all that, where he handles uh, mediations. He's had uh, 20 appeals, including uh, appeals in uh, the area of homeowners association law, some seminal cases there. Um, and Barry's, <clears throat> Barry's a humble man. He is one of the state's preeminent homeowners association uh, law attorneys representing the homeowners. And um, I first know Barry Ross um, way back when. And he still is. But way back when he was one of the state's preeminent eminent domain attorneys and has a, a key appellate decision uh, in that area and still remains one of uh, the state's most fantastic and, and respected eminent domain attorneys from the you know condemnee side, the landowner side whose property is being taken. So um, I thank Barry Ross very much for taking his time to talk about um, – uh, talk to us today about his book. Are you the king or queen of your castle? Not if you live in a homeowners association. And that's that's a meaning that's a meaningful title. We'll ask uh, Barry to put that uh, into perspective. Um, first, I want to make sure Barry, are you happy with that introduction? Do you have anything to add? I have nothing to add. That was a great introduction. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for being a guest and uh, giving us the benefit of your wisdom here. So you write um, in your book that you you aim to edu- educate people about some of the major pitfalls in a community association based on the cases I've handled in my professional law practice for 50 years. This book is... Um, is meant for um, community association managers and, you know, mostly the people who reside in community associations to appreciate the, the complexity of the laws that impact um, HOA uh, communities, as well as some of the, uh, the pitfalls that uh, an HOA member can um, you know, step into and how you can help, how you can help uh, get them around the pitfalls, um, HOA approval process, and your, you have, you have so many rich and interesting 
and in-depth stories here that um, we'll get to uh, as well. But I, I just want to say that I read this. It's, it's really, you, you have a great sense of humor. You have a wry sense of humor and your sense of humor comes through in the book. These are, these are very pleasant stories to read. Um, they're exceedingly educational in terms of um, pitfalls and errors that you can make, even if you're astute. Um, but also it's written from a passion perspective. It's clear that, that you're very passionate about what you do and you're passionate about your clients. So, um, and you're passionate about your career and, and you should be. So with that, why don't you, in, in your own words, tell us, you know, why'd you write this book? Well, the reason I wrote this book is that my wife, Myra, encouraged me to write the book. I would report to her that the new case that I, for which I was retained that day, and she would tell me that you should write a book about this because no one's ever going to believe this story about this case. So I never had time to write a book previously, and uh, Myra kept telling me, write a book, write a book. And Unfortunately, my, my wife passed away two years ago due to cancer, and I found myself with time on my hands. So I decided to follow Myra's advice and write this book about the cases I've handled, because it's true that most people wouldn't believe these stories happen, but they did. And they're all my own cases that, have, that I've handled over the years. And you, you've picked some good cases. It's uh, this book is a very uh, informative and enjoyable read. So you have a very uh, astute title. Tell us about the title of the book. Well, when most people buy a house, they think they're really buying a single-family residence where they can do in and about the house pretty much what they want. In other words, they could paint the house any color they want. They could do the landscaping in front of the house any way they want. They could improve their backyard as they want. But when you buy a house in a community association, you don't get that. You're, you're not the authority of that area. You're not the king of your castle or the queen of your castle. Uh, you have to get approval from the association to do just about everything that's outside your house. In fact, in some associations, you even require approval to do certain things inside your house, such as uh, having wood flooring, having uh, carpeted flooring instead of wood flooring. So there's a lot of controls on what you do with regard to your house if you live in a, in a community association or a homeowners association that you don't have when you buy a single-family residence. And most people don't understand the difference. They think they're buying a house, and it's a house. It's just like any other house. But if you buy a house in a community association, you're very restricted in terms of what you can do and can't do. And you talk about in your, pre uh, in your preface about how prevalent HOA you know, common interest developments are in the state of state of California. You mentioned um, thirty percent of the housing in California is subject to um, covenants, codes, and restrictions. So, could you um, you know spend a little time instructing us on on what laws, what statutes would apply to to an HOA development? The, the, the primary statute that applies to homeowners associations is what's called the Davis-Sterling Common Interest Development Act, and it's contained in the California Civil Code. 
Now, in addition to that, there are other codes that are applicable, but probably more significantly, there is a document called the Declaration of Covenants, Conditions, and Restrictions that's recorded with the county recorder, which contains additional restrictions on what a property owner can do if a property owner buys a house in a community association. And many people don't bother to read the CCNRs, as it's called, uh, mainly because two reasons. One, it's usually over 100 pages. Number two, it's written in legalese, and it's not easy to understand. Some of the conditions, covenants, and restrictions are written over 50 years ago. So uh, for many reasons, people don't read that, and then they're surprised after they buy their house and find out they can only have one pet, not two pets, those kinds of things. We have, you know, we have a case uh, together and, you know, we know the CCNRs in, in that particular case are very, uh, you know, are very detailed and, and lengthy. So it's important to, to read those documents and reread those documents and they could be amended as well. So you might not just be reading one CCNR, you might be re reading various reiterations of CCNRs over the, over the years. That's correct. Um, I had a case in Anaheim across the street from Disneyland. This one is not in my book. Maybe it'll be in my next volume of my book. But the, it, these people uh, wanted to do short-term rentals because being across the street from Disneyland is an ideal location for short-term rentals. So they checked with the association's board of directors to find out if they could do short-term rentals at that location. And the board of directors said, sure, that's fine. So they bought several units in this condominium complex and set them up as short-term rentals and had a prosperous business going. And now we fast forward three or four years later, now there's a different member, there are different members on the board of directors. And the board of directors decided to change the CCNRs and the membership voted to change the CCNRs. You can't do short-term rentals. So now my client's short-term rental business was terminated by a change in the CCNRs by the membership because the membership initially was in favor of short-term rentals. And then over the years, they decided they didn't like short-term rentals. Meanwhile, my client's business was disrupted. You um, you mentioned the, um, the complexity of CCNRs, both in terms of stylistically how they're written in, in, in legalese and their length, and possibly there's several, you know, uh, there's several uh, amendments that you also have to to go through and determine whether what's been changed from the original CCNRs. That's not an easy task, and you start off with uh, your book starts off with a very good chapter involving, um, you know, your moving into an HOA community and wanting to extend your fence, and um, you know, as you mentioned, you read the CCNRs, but one really has to analyze those um, in depth because, you know, you could still miss something like, you know, paint color. That's correct. And, and I missed it. And I not only read the CCNRs, I, I was a real estate attorney at the time. So you expect that my reading of the CCNRs would be thorough and complete. And I missed something on the application that indicated that you have to designate the paint color of the fence. 
So I got approval for the fence, but I didn't get approval for the paint color. And then after I installed the new fence that was authorized, the fence had to be painted. So I painted a color. Unfortunately, the association decided it wasn't an approved color on their approved palette list. So uh, the association uh, ordered me to change the paint color of my fence. And at first I was going to fight with the association about this because I didn't think they had the authority to do so. But then I did two things. I read the governing documents and realized they did have the authority to do so. And, but the other thing that happened is my wife looked at the color of the fence and didn't like it either. So I wasn't going to fight with my wife and the association over the same little fence. So I decided it was a much simpler route to go to the paint store and buy a can of paint and repaint the fence, an approved color that was approved by both my wife and the homeowners association. So everybody was happy afterwards. Yeah, very difficult to fight a battle at two fronts against the HOA <laughs> and at home. This is true. <laughs> you're going to be you're going to be in trouble there. Yeah. You know, um, talk to me about your uh, your passion for this uh, area of the law and and how it was triggered. Because again, this book is is a very good read. I I like to talk to people that are passionate about what they do, and it it comes. It's clear from reading your book that that you are, and it started off with something simple as uh, helping your daughter, um, you know, play with sailboats in the community, as you that, mentioned that, in chapter two. Yeah, that that is correct. That that's how my foray into community association law, homeowner association law, started. My daughter, who was here with me, who helped me set up for this podcast. Uh, was 10 years old at the time, and she wanted to take a sailboat lesson on the lake by her house, but you had to be accompanied by an adult. So she asked me to be the accompanying adult, and I said, sure. So I went with her to take a sailboat lesson. I didn't know how to operate a sailboat either, so I figured it'd be a good lesson for both of us. So we went to the dock for the lesson, and there were five or six couples there waiting for the lesson, and the person who was going to conduct the lesson had five or six sailboats in the lake in front of us. And I just assumed each of us would be in a sailboat by ourselves. And the instructor would give us a lesson on how to operate each individual sailboat. But the instructor said, we've got a problem here in our association. I said, what's the problem? The problem is every boat has some broken parts to it. So in one boat, the rudder was broken. Another boat, the sailboat was torn. The sail was torn. And another boat had, had a leak. Every boat had some kind of problem. So what the tech, what the instructor had to do was jerry-rig a, a, an operational boat out of all the other boats. So he took one part from one boat, another part from another boat, and constructed it together. So he ended up with one boat that was functional. And then he had to take each of us out one at a time on the lake for about five or ten minutes each, which wasn't much because we were expecting an hour sailboat lesson. So uh, I complained about it, and the, of course the instructor said, you got to go to the board of directors. And so I, I did that. At the next board meeting, I went to the board of directors and complained. And after I complained about the poor quality of the sailboats, the board of directors told me, Mr. Ross will look into it. And I got the impression by the way they said that that's kind of the standard response they say to anybody that complains at a board of directors meeting. And I probably looked disappointed with that response, and the uh, the president of the board of directors said, Mr. Ross, if you don't like the way we're doing things, why don't you run for the board? Right. And I decided to do that. 
I took him up on that challenge. I ran for the board. I got elected at the next election. And my first priority on the agenda was to get new sailboats for the lake. And I did that. Over the course of the next year, I got authorization for sailboats. And the following year, the sailboats arrived and we got all new sailboats for the lake. And they're all in good condition. And they're still in good condition. And Barry, you were a hero at home and in the community <laughs> because of that. Yeah, that, that's true. In that case, it worked well at home as well as for the association. You know, on its um, uh, most basic level, if you have uh, a client that lives in an HOA and you want to challenge uh, an HOA decision, <clears throat> that on some level is a breach of contract action, right? Because that's the, correct. The covenant codes and restrictions are a contract. So um, if the HOA is, is making an opinion that, or, or has an opinion that you can't do something because of CCNR paragraph three, subsection A, you're, um, you're fighting a breach of contract action, correct? That's correct. And, but your book makes, um, uh, makes, you know, a very, very good point when two of the chapters, I th two dogs are one and the story about the marijuana that you're dealing with claims that can be much, much more than, than breach of contract. You could be dealing with claims that also involve um, emotional distress claims um, as, you know, as, as you allude to in your chapter about two dogs or one. Um, and you talk about nuisance claims as well. So there's a lot of legal theories that um, you would have to deal with. Why don't you, you know, uh, talk about that if you would. Well, that's true. Many people think that homeowner association disputes involve primarily disputes involving hundreds of thousands of dollars. And maybe someone wants to remodel a house and they can't remodel it or the, the neighbor's remodeling and you're opposed to it and you're dealing with a multi-million dollar project. But that's not the case. In, in the real world, in which I, I, I practice, you deal with cases involving, I deal with cases involving personal matters as well. And the, the dog case is a good example of that. Um, the, um, my client had two very cute little dogs. They're, they look like twins, but they weren't. It was a boy and a girl dog. And I have a picture of them in my book, actually, because I, I, I thought they were very oh, cute yeah. dogs. I like those dogs. Um, and um, the the the, uh, propri the owner of these two dogs was a single woman living by herself, and these dogs were like her family. They were like her children. And she would walk her dogs every day. And one day when she was walking her two dogs, an association representative saw that and informed her that you're only allowed to have one dog, according to our CCNRs, and you have two dogs, so you're going to have to get rid of one of your dogs. And then shortly thereafter, she got a letter from the association attorney telling her, if you don't get rid of one of your dogs, we're going to initiate enforcement action against you. So I represented her and she said, you, I can't get rid of my dogs. This is like a Sophie's choice telling me I have two children. I have to kill one of my children. I'm not going to do that. Um, I, I want both keep both my dogs and they're very important. So I tried to figure out a way that she could keep her dogs in this association where the CCNRs were fairly clearly written. You can only have one pet. Doesn't matter whether you have a dog or a cat, you can only have one. So I had to figure out how she could keep two, two pets. 
So what I did is I sent her to a psychologist to see if she would suffer emotional trauma or disability of some sort because of the loss of one of her two dogs. And the psychologist wrote a report that was very helpful that said, yes, she she has this thing where if she loses one of her two dogs, she'll be depressed. And then I sent the two dogs to obedience school to, to get them qualified. And uh, although the dogs are very cute, they weren't all that smart. So they flunked obedience school the first time. And I had to send them back a second time to take the class again. They did pass it the second time. So they, they got their certificate from obedience school. And uh, then I submitted that certificate from obedience school, as well as the psychologist report to the association and said, you know, under these circumstances, I, we have a, a disability under the Americans with Disability Act situation. And if you want to fight us on that, you can. Otherwise, let her keep both dogs. There's no problem with the dogs. The dogs weren't barking at anybody or, or being disruptive or, or making noise or creating any problems. But the association just had a rule that they wanted to enforce. So the association, after we, after we had a three-hour mediation, the association agreed to allow her to keep both dogs. And she still has both dogs. That's the level that that's a very creative tactic. And it, it, it put the HOA in a, in a bad position, you know, a bad light. You put great pressure on them. Um, and I think it, it, it affirms two things in my mind. That's the kind of experience that, that you have to come up with those kinds of year ideas after 50 years of, you know, experience and, um, learning an area, a subject area in, in great detail, but still not just focusing on um, contract language, because if you just focus on contract language, you know, as you mentioned, the, the CCNRs are pretty clear. You can only have one pet. You've got to be creative sometimes in your, in your legal arguments. That's correct. My thoughts on when, when we're dealing, when you're dealing with um, public bodies or, or private bodies, uh, like an HOA, an HOA architectural committee, is how you, um, you know, present your client when you go to a meeting and advocate on their behalf and how you uh, make your arguments. There's, there's a professional, I think, uh, a professional style is better than something pugilistic. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of clients like to go to a board of directors meeting and be more pugilistic, as you say, and argumentative. And my my approach, which I think is more successful, is going to the association board meeting and trying to be more friendly and sociable and trying to reach for a way to resolve a problem rather than being argumentative. And sometimes I have an argumentative client that just wants to argue, and I'll tell the client before the board meeting, let me do all the talking. I'm afraid to let him open his mouth at the meeting because, you know, the more more he speaks, the more he argues, the more antagonistic the situation will get. So part of my role is controlling my own client. <laughs> that's yeah. That's that's uh, that's often our uh, that's often our rule as as counsel. But you know, also from a from a practical matter, you know, these are your neighbors, right? And so uh, you're going to run into them. I mean, you want to make you want to make your points as as uh, in a professional manner, I think, and clearly, um, 
clearly cite to, um, you know, case law, um, your interpretation of the CCNRs versus their interpretation of the CCNRs. But don't forget that, you know, they're your neighbors. You know, you're going to have to live with them for a long time. That's a good point. The, um, the, the judge case that you, that you have with um, the, the marijuana smoke that, um, you know, impacted her uh, personally, but also professionally, <clears throat> that, that, brings to, uh, that brings to light that in addition to having uh, a case that you could bring against an HOA for breaching the CCNRs as the language is written, um, you have a nuisance case. And in California, nuisance causes of action um, are, are a big threat. It's a big club that you can wield over, uh, over an HOA. Talk, talk about that, if you would. Yeah, that was an interesting case. My, my client was and is a federal court judge. And uh, she lived in, she worked in downtown Los Angeles, and she lived in a, in a condominium in downtown Los Angeles near the courthouse. And she was complaining to me about her neighbor who constantly smokes marijuana. And so she smells marijuana in her unit because the ventilation system between her unit and the adjacent unit was not that great. So when the neighbor would smoke marijuana, which he did frequently, I guess it was kind of like a chain smoker, uh, she would smell it all the time. So my first inclination in my brain was, what's the problem? You have a smell of marijuana. A lot of people might like that smell uh, or might get uh, find that enjoyable, but she didn't. And so... I inquired as to why this was a problem for her, and she had a very unique situation being a federal judge, because as a federal judge, she, she just like many federal employees, she's subject to random testing for alcohol or drugs. So at any moment, the U.S. Marshal could stop her in the hallway and say, we need to take a check to see if you have any alcohol, uh, alcoholic beverages or marijuana or drugs in your system. And if it's determined she did, then she could lose her job as a federal judge. So, so all of a sudden, this case became much more serious. It's not just the smell of marijuana. It's also the loss of her livelihood. So um, I, I looked into it, and it, it was covered under the nuisance provision in, this, in the CCNRs. The, the nuisance provision says that one neighbor can't create a situation that creates a, a situation for the adjacent neighbor or any other neighbor to find it uh, difficult or unreasonable to live in their in their residence, and that's exactly what was happening here. What the neighbor was complaining was smoking marijuana nonstop and had marijuana parties and whatnot, and so she was constantly smelling marijuana in her unit, concerned it was getting into her her body. So I complained to the association. The association said, well, we're not going to do anything about this. This is a neighbor versus neighbor problem. We're not going to get involved. They got to work it out between themselves. And the neighbor said, I have a right to smoke marijuana in my unit. It's my house. I can smoke marijuana as much as I want. If I want to smoke nonstop, I can smoke nonstop. If you don't like the smell, that's your problem. So I filed a lawsuit against the association and the neighbor to enjoin the nuisance of the marijuana smell. And uh, the end result was the neighbor moved out when the neighbor was served with a lawsuit. So that solved that problem. The new neighbor didn't, the new owner 
didn't smoke marijuana. And the association agreed to fix the vent between the two units. So the smell from one unit didn't pass as much into the next unit. And the association also paid her, reimbursed her for her attorney's fees that she had paid me. So it was a win-win for my client. And she didn't have to smell the marijuana anymore or worry about her loss of job. So that, that worked out well. It did work out well. And it raises a good point. Um, I think HOA members, people that move into an HOA, think that the CCNR is, you know, a, a baton, strictly a baton that can be used against them. It's it's a baton that the that the HOA association can say, you know, look on page twenty seven, paragraph three. You have to do this. You can't do this. However, it's a CCNRs are also a two edged sword, as you as that story. Um, sets forth, you know, you on behalf of the resident can point to a, a portion of the CCNR and say, no, HOA association, you must take action. That's what the enjoining thing is. You must make this person stop because of what's written on, you know, paragraph four and page 28. And if you don't honor your obligations under this contract to me, I'm going to have the court force you to do so. So it's really a, a double-edged sword. That's true. That's very true. When you move into a, an HOA or you're contemplating it, uh, you know, one of the key considerations is what are the dues and what do I get for the dues? So you have, um, you, you have one, one story about um, a 500% increase in, in, in HOA dues in, in a, in a mixed-use common interest community, a commercial usage and, and a residential usage, but um, which, which is a very unique situation. I've never, I've never heard of one uh, common interest development like that until I, until I read this book. But the issue of, of HOA dues and how they can be increased and for what purpose that's a that's a that's a fertile area of dispute for you, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's also a special problem in a mixed use development where you have some residential use and some commercial use in the same building, which is what I had in, in a case in Pasadena. And these types of buildings are not all that unique. There's uh, I was involved in developing such buildings in downtown Long Beach when I was an assistant city attorney for the city of Long Beach. Um, because it, there was a desire to have a building in downtown Long Beach where you could live, work, and play in the same building. So you could live in the building, you could have your office in the building, and you could do your shopping in the building. And so you could theoretically never leave the building. But in the case in Pasadena I had um, was a floor level of, of retail use. And there were about eight stores at floor level like a hair salon and a beauty parlor and a shoe repair shop and those kinds of things at, at the street level, uh, a yogurt store. And then at the, all the above levels, which were several levels above, it was all residential. And unfortunately, this was all wrapped up into one community association, one set of CCNRs. So the 
CCNRs have the usual provisions about amendments, that the CCNRs can be amended if you have a supermajority vote, which is normally 66% or 75% of the vote. And in this case, over 90% of the vote was residential and less than 10% was commercial. The commercial level only had the, the first floor level. So the owners of the residential units realized that they could raise the dues on the commercial unit owners without raising their own dues. So they raised the dues on the commercial owners by 400% in one year. And at the same time, they passed a measure saying their own dues can't be raised at all. So I represented the commercial owners and we initiated a lawsuit against the association saying, hey, this is unfair to the commercial owners. You're not treating them fairly compared to the residential owners. And we eventually got that resolved where the dues was significantly decreased for the commercial owners. It's important to know, um, I live in an in HOA. Um, it's important to know what you get for the money, right? That's correct. And it's important to, you should, you should, um, you know, pay attention to, to the reserves um, because that dictates whether the HOA has the money set aside to do what they're contractually bound to do. That's what the reserves are all about, I've, if I got that correct. Yes, you have it correct. There's so, you know, but there's a risk, I, I, I think, um, as we know from, from a case that that uh, we recently had together, there, there's a risk if you if you want to buy into a very small common interest development, you know, just a few owners, a dozen or so owners. Um, if the HOA dues aren't set correctly, and if um, the reserves aren't also, you know, set correctly as well, um, there may not be the money to do the maintenance that the HOA is obligated to do. So it, it's, it's important to, um, to, I think, move into the right kind of community. I'd, I'd be nervous to buy into an HOA that had, um, you know, a dozen, 10, 10 or less um, residents. What, do you, what are your thoughts about that? Yes, I, I agree. And reserves are very important. And it's a topic that's often overlooked, even by sophisticated buyers. Sophisticated buyers might read the CCNRs, might read the other governing documents like the bylaws, but they frequently don't study the reserves. And studying the reserves is very important when you buy into a community association. Because if there aren't enough reserves, what that means is that in the future years, there are going to be expenses for repair and maintenance of the common area that the association has not budgeted for. So what that means is when those items happen, such as a new roof has to be installed because the roof is leaking and it's outlived its useful life, um, the association doesn't have the money to pay for the new roof. So what happens is the association has to impose a special assessment on the owners to pay for the new roof. And that is um, usually not uh, met with, a, with a, a happy face because in addition, the owners are paying their regular dues. Now they have to pay a special assessment on top of that to pay for the new roof that 
nobody in the past anticipated they would need by putting money away to save for the new roof. And that's the whole purpose of reserves. A reserve study determines what your future needs are for repair and maintenance of the common area. And it tells the association how much money they have to store away now so that in the future they can pay for this anticipated expense. And many associations, particularly small associations, like you mentioned, 10 and under, don't do that. I had a case in Newport Beach where it was a five-unit homeowners association facing the, facing the ocean, beautiful ocean view. And what they did is um, each one had their own roof. So when, when each one needed a new roof, they would meet in front of the building and say, look, my unit needs a new roof. It's going to be X thousands of dollars. I need each of you to con- contribute to this new roof. And they would all agree to pay a, a percentage of the new roof for that unit owner's building. But the problem is they never had the money in reserves. So now we fast forward a few years, my client needs a new roof. So she meets in the front lawn with the other owners and they say, you know what? We're not gonna contribute to your roof because it's your roof, it's your problem. You handle it yourself. We're not gonna contribute our one fifth to your roof. So I had to sue the association over that to get the other members to pay for her share of the roof just like they had done in the past for everyone else's roof. So those are the kinds of problems that can arise when you don't have adequate money in reserves, as you mentioned. Sticking on that same, uh, same theme. um, And we've talked about this um, before. An HOA, uh, an HOA resident, let's just stick with the roof theme. The, The roof, the roof is deteriorated and needs to be fixed. And the HOA says, we will fix it in this particular manner. And the HOA member says, um, no, I want you to do more. You know, For instance, what if the HOA says, well, there's some cracks, we admit it, and we're going to have them sealed. And the HOA resident says, that's not going to solve the problem. That just, you know, that just kicks the can down the road a bit. We're still going to have a problem in, in a few years. Let's replace the entire roof. Um, you're really, you're really hard pressed if you represent that kind of client to force the HOA to do a specific type of repair that your client wants under the CCNRs. Correct? I mean, the, the that, 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 yeah, that is correct, um, and that that's a tough situation for the client because the association has a certain amount of discretion called judicial deference to make decisions about uh, repairs and maintenance of the common area and uh, those types of decisions. And the judges generally won't second guess the association if the decision bears any resemblance to reasonableness. And if you have a roof that's leaking and the association says, we're going to uh, fix the leaks, but we're not going to provide a new roof, you're hard pressed to show that that's not a, a reasonable solution to the problem, even though, as you say, it kicks the can down the road. And then a year or two later, you've got more leaks somewhere else in the roof. And again, the roof needs to be addressed. Um, that That's that's an ongoing problem I deal with in, in the home association world, where the association chooses the cheaper fix for the problem and the owner wants the more expensive fix. There's actually a Supreme Court case on this issue called the Lambden case. 
L-A-M-B-D-E-N, that addresses this issue. And in that case, it dealt with termites rather than the roof. There was termite infestation in the building. And the owner said, based on his termite report, that what we need to do is fumigate the building. Have everyone move out, put a tent over the building and fumigate. That's what will solve the termite problem in the building. And the association said, no, we have a termite report from our own termite inspector that says we can spot treat and that'll solve the problem. So the, the association decided to spot treat and the owner filed a lawsuit against the association saying they shouldn't spot treat, they need to fumigate. So what you had is a situation where there were two conflicting expert reports. You had the owner's report that said fumigate, you had the homeowner's association, the homeowner's association's report that said you need to spot spray. So um, what happened is it went all the way up to the, the California Supreme Court and the, the California Supreme Court said, um, as long as the association relies on an expert, their reliance can't be reversed, even though it turned out their decision was wrong. In other words, it was established by subsequent testimony in the case that the best treatment for this termite situation in this building was fumigation rather than spot treatment. And um, that even though they, the Supreme Court was aware of that information, they said the association wasn't liable because they have the discretion to make decisions based on the information they have. And if they, if they have an expert report they can rely on, uh, they, they can make that decision, even though it turns out to be the incorrect decision and they're not liable. Discretion runs through, you know, all types of contracts, not just CCNRs. Um, so it's an important, uh, important concept to keep in mind. And it is, it is a challenge for an HOA member to say, you know, uh, that's not discretion. That's just a completely wrong way of looking at it. And I want someone else done. Yeah. I, I don't know of any cases um, where, you know, hypothetically, the the board is not doing its job. Um, the reserves are insufficient to meet, um, you know, the, the current conditions in, in the community. And uh, someone takes the position that uh, my money is, is, is all for naught and this place is run down um, and, you know, I'm, I'm losing my uh, property value and the use and enjoyment of my property let's take action to remove the CCNRs. Let's just turn this into uh, this is my unit. I have the money to take care of it and, you know, um, remove the whole HOA CCNR concept. I don't think you can do that. Can you? You can only do that with unanimous consent of the owners. And that, that is almost impossible to obtain. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine that's a pretty tough burden. Yeah, I did. I did have one case where um, getting close to that issue where it was a, a, a situation in a community association where all the homes were built as one story initially. And several of the owners. I'm sorry. Let me turn off my phone. I thought I did. And, um, several of the owners wanted to build a second story on their home. But the CCNR said you only can have one story. 
So I told my client, how many other people want to do second stories? He said, almost everybody. So I said, well, let's start the process to amend the CCNRs. And we did that. And we got the CCNRs amended to say that you could do second stories on homes. And it took a supermajority vote, like I said, 66% or 75%, whatever the percentage was in the CCNRs. But but they got a supermajority vote and they amended the CCNRs so then they could all do second story homes. And that was one way of addressing the problem of people wanting to do second story homes where the CCNRs clearly said you can only have one story homes. I think that's probably the luckiest you've ever been. I hope you bought a lottery ticket after that. <laughs> I didn't have one of those homes, though. I wasn't that lucky. You know, you have um, you have a story um, in your book, uh, you know, basically, don't lie to your attorney, which um, I, I never understand. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever had that happen to me. Um, and I don't understand the motivation there because you've got the attorney-client privilege. You know, you can tell your your client anything that you can, you can tell your you can tell your counsel. You know, I, I think I'm I'm going out on a limb here. I think I did something I shouldn't have done. I don't think I'm completely in the right. And then, you know, as a team working with your client, you can figure out how to get out of it. So, lying is lying to your attorney is never going to get you uh, anywhere. But um, that story highlights the enforcement powers that the HOA has if you have violated um, you know the CCNRs in terms of, of build some building something. So if you have an instance where you know your your client um, exceeded their their authority to build uh, build something that they weren't supposed to build, what can the HOA do? The HOA can, um, as in the case in my book, the HOA can get a court order from a judge to have that building demolished and uh, at the owner's cost. So the building not only gets demolished, but the owner has to pay for it. Plus, the owner has to pay for the association's attorney's fees on top of that. So the, the consequences can be very severe. In that particular case, the client wanted to remodel his backyard to put in a full-scale basketball court for his son, who he thought was going to become a basketball star. And in the in the pre-existing condition, he had a half-court basketball court back there, but he wanted to make it a full-court basketball court. So to do that, he had to uh, remodel the backyard. And in doing the remodeling, the homeowner extended the backyard fence out 30 feet into the association common area. But the owner told the association and me that he didn't extend into the association common area. He just built the current fence where the previous fence was. And he, he didn't extend into the association common area when in fact he did. When the client hired me, he told me that the fence is the same location it always was and he didn't extend it into the association common area. Um, it wasn't until we got into litigation and had discovery and exchange of documents with the other side that it became apparent that my client lied to me and he did extend the fence line into the association common area so he could have a full court basketball court instead of a half court basketball court in his backyard. Um, 
unfortunately for the client and me as well, the I built my defense to the case based on what my client told me. I defended the case based on the fact that the client uh, built the current fence where the previous fence was. If I had known the client extended the fence into 30 feet of the association common area, I would have told the client to settle the case quickly because he's going to lose the case if we go to court. But I didn't know that at the time. I just discovered that through the course of litigation. And ultimately, the end result was the client lost. He had to demolish his entire backyard, including the full court basketball court, and all the other landscaping and sprinkler systems and everything else that goes into uh, redoing a a backyard. And then he he did that at his own cost. Plus, he had to pay the association's attorney's fees. He appealed that case to the Court of Appeal and lost the case at the Court of Appeal. So then he had to pay even more attorney's fees to the association for losing the case at the Court of Appeal. So it was a horrible result caused by the association lying to their attorney, namely me. That's that's a tough position to be in. I mean, that must have been um, – it, it's, it's a very good story and it's a very good lesson – um, but that must have been tough to write. It was. Yeah. But there's nothing you can do because, again, um, as counsel, we're, we're, we're ethically bound. We can't perpetrate a lie to the court. We can't. Well, that's true. That, that's yeah. absolutely right. And, and I wasn't lying to the court. You know, the client said what the client wanted to say. And um, the, the judge saw that the client wasn't being honest. Right. And once you once you know that, once you know that you've been you've been lied to, you're in a position where you can't perpetrate that any any further. That's correct. I, I also use this case to illustrate another point. I, I read books written by other attorneys who who write about all the cases they won and none of the cases they lose. <laughs> I thought it was important to give some balance to the cases I won with a case that I lost to show that. Attorneys do lose cases, and attorneys who say they never lose cases either don't try any cases or are lying about their their success and failure rate. But um, we, no matter how good we are, we just don't win every case. No, we don't. I, and I always tell clients, you know, they and what, what you're in the same position. You know, clients always tell you, "I got a winner. I got you know," and I tell them, you know, with with few exceptions. Um, like the clear expiration of a statute of limitations. I tell people there's no clear winner and no clear loser. There's a lot of latitude there. Um, so, you know, we're going to have to be realistic at, at, at all stages. Um, you have, um, you know, a story about uh, pictures and I'm on, I'm on the architectural committee for, for my HOA. And when, and when people submit requests to, um, uh, like for instance, when they submit requests to put up, uh, an awning or, um, a palapa or something like that, oftentimes they will just submit a, a drawing and we can't give them the approval because we want to see a picture of what it's going to look like um, and you know, is it going to throw, is it going to, uh, be big enough? 
um, to throw shade on someone else's yard or obstruct someone else's view. So, you know, when you're, when you're going to an HOA and asking for approval, it's very important to have, you know, lots of pictures depicting what it's going to look like and um, is it going to, you know, intrude into a setback area or come close to a setback area? Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, that, that's true. Um, many associations have rules on how high certain things can be built in your backyard. For example, if you build a casita, it can only be a certain height. If you build a fence, it can only be a certain height. Whatever you build in your backyard has height limitations. Uh, One of the cases in my book presents an interesting issue as to what it is that was built because um, the height limitations for everything varies. So in this particular case, the the height limitation for a, a swing set was higher than the height limitation for an outside structure. So you could build like an outside structure, such as a, a barn, for example, that could hold your supplies and gardening supplies and those kinds of things, or a, a pool area that would hold your pool supplies. Uh, so there's, there's the, the swing set could be higher than the outside structure in the, in the CCNRs. But the, um, the owner, in this case, uh, built a, a structure in his backyard that he said was a swing set. But the, the association said it's not a swing set, it's a structure. It's an outside structure, so it falls under the outside structure category, not a swing set. And what my client did was he had a, 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 a structure in his backyard, which I, I have a photograph of in the book, and it shows you a, uh, and what he did, he attached the swing to his structure and said, well, now it's a swing set. And it falls under the higher height limit. And uh, we never went to court on that case. I don't know how it was resolved, but I, I suspect the uh, the client didn't have a very good case on that one because uh, basically he had an outside structure that he attached a swing to and called it a swing set. And I don't think that would qualify as, as a swing set under the traditional rules of the interpretation. But um, that, that was kind of an interesting case with so the structure itself was a, a home entertainment center. What it was, it had a, a it was a, mo- a way to watch movies outside. It oh. had a screen that came down and you could either sit in the pool or on a raft or sit in the, or swim in the pool and, and or sit in a chair by the side of the pool and watch movies or TV on this big screen. And then when you're not watching a movie or on this screen, the screen rolls up and then there's a swing set attached to it. So then you could swing on it. The other thing that you could use it for is a diving board. You could climb up the back and jump off it and jump into the swimming pool. So it had several different uses. And the question was, what is it? In what category does it fit? And uh, unfortunately, I never ended up with a court decision on it. But maybe it's fortunate I never ended up with a court decision. <laughs> I think I would have lost. But um, I don't know what the end result was on that one, but it's an interesting case. As Mr. Ross said on page 57, a picture is worth a thousand words. <laughs> yeah, so, right. um, you, started, uh, you started off with um, uh, telling 
telling the audience that, you know, your wife said, you've got a lot of interesting cases. You should write a book. And um, I do um, I do a lot of, you know, legal writing articles that are that are published some longer form. And I know the writing process is um, is unique to everybody. And it is a lot of work, as you mentioned. So um, what was your what was your writing process? I, you know, you have the law offices of Barry Ross. So you're responsible for everything. I know you have a, a very charming assistant, but and capable assistant. But you know, you're you're running your own business, you've got a family. Um, what was your writing process? Well, it wasn't as smooth as I thought it would be. I thought, and I, I've never written a book before. So this is my first experience writing a book. And I, like you, I've written articles, professional articles for law magazines in the past. But my thought on writing this book was that I would sit down and write chapter after chapter after chapter and then finish the book. Uh, it wasn't like that. I would write a chapter or two and then I, it seemed like I, I couldn't get into the next chapter yet. I had to pause for a while and think about it and then come back to it later. So I couldn't write continuously as I thought I would be able to. It, you you have to kind of be in a creative mood to, to write these kinds of stories. And I had to get my mindset in that, in that framework. So when, once I could do that, I could write a story or two. Um, the other thing I did to motivate me is I took a writing class, a creative writing class. And in that class, we had to write a story each week for the following week that we would present to the class. So that would motivate me to write at least one story a week. And then after the class ended, I joined a group of people who were in that class where we created basically our own class and we would continue writing and presenting stories to the group. And the idea is when you present your story to the group, the group would give you constructive criticism of the article and give you some suggestions on how to how to make uh, future stories uh, more more memorable. So um, that's what I did, and that helped me go. But then when I went to my publisher and said, I have 10 stories here, and I thought I was finished, the publisher said, you need 20 stories. <laughs> so, uh, so then I had to go back to the drawing board, and then and I was finished with the class. I was finished with the group, but I had to come up with, 20, with 10 more stories, and I, it took a while to do that. And the other part of the writing process that was challenging was proofreading. I read the stories over and over again, and each time I read them, I found some mistakes that I made previously that I needed to correct. And I, I thought my original thought was, when you write a story once, that should be the end of it. But I had to do a lot more proofreading than I anticipated to get us get it to the final product, and it took a while. So finally, I got the book printed, and I submitted it to the publisher, and then I found out unbeknownst to me that there are 101 other decisions to make, such as what should be on the front cover? What should be on the back cover? What size print should there be? Do you want color in the book or not? Do you want photographs in the book or not? All those kinds of decisions that I just didn't anticipate because I never wrote a book before. So um, we finally got through the process and it, it, the process took over a year from start to finish. I had no idea it would take me a year to write this book. 
I mean, as you can tell from the book, it's, it's only a little book. I don't know if I can show it on the screen. I'm not sure it shows. I don't know how to do that exactly. You have to hold it still, and it'll pick it up. Yeah, it's not coming through very clearly. It's not coming through. But anyway, it's, it's a little book, so you wouldn't think it would take that much work, but it took a year's worth of work to, to write the book. And then after I finished writing the book and got it published, uh, my publisher informed me that I now had to market the book. And that's why I'm here on this podcast, that people know about my book, because otherwise no one knows about my book. Yeah, I, I like – when I write, I like to do it early in the morning. And I like to start um, start at least um, early concepts, early drafts or sections, you know, with pen and paper, because it's it's a slower pace. Um, it allows me to you know to write at, at 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 the pace that I'm that I'm thinking, and then you know just keep keep uh, keep refining it. Um, do you have another book in you? Yeah, I'd like to write a volume two. I, I've had a couple of recent cases that I think might be good for a second volume, so I may may pursue that. But um, I'm, I've, I've been thinking about that. Yes, I haven't made a decision yet. Listen, I greatly enjoyed um, your book. Well, thank you. I've greatly enjoyed this conversation, and um, over twenty plus years of. Um, greatly enjoyed knowing you i mean your um your source your source of uh, great uh, knowledge guidance uh mentoring and um you're just a very pleasant guy well thank you i feel the same way about you terry thank you so much i wasn't fishing for a compliment but no this is all <laughs> this is about you now please tell um please tell our our audience where they can get this book that's important because you're here your publisher said hey You've got to sell this book. Let's do it. <laughs> That's true. Um, you can buy the book almost anywhere. You could buy it on Amazon. You could buy it at Barnes and Noble. You just go online for wherever you buy your books and look, either look it up under the title of the book, Are You the King or Queen of Your Castle? Or look it up under my name, Barry A. Ross, and you'll find it either by author or by name online. Uh, it's not in the in the bookstores physically any at this point, but if uh, the audience buys enough books, it might eventually be there. But it's not there yet. Well, I have I have the highest hopes that um, uh, it will be in bookstores because it's a very enjoyable read, and um, I th you know it says a lot about you. It says a lot about how you, you care about your clients and uh, your depth of knowledge and uh, and your passion. So I'm going to give you the final word. Anything that uh, we haven't covered that you'd like to uh, like to say? No, I think you've covered it all. I, I hope people would take a look at my book. Uh, you can go online and read parts of it. And if you like it, buy the book. Well, my best to you and your, and, and your family over the holiday season. And, um, you know, we keep in touch uh, professionally. So um, uh, have a wonderful time and, ha and a happy new year. Thank, thank you. You too. And thank you for allowing me to be on this podcast. I really appreciate Our it. Our pleasure.